to walk faithfully before you. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so if you've got the sheet, you can see that the problem that is initially introduced by Paul in 1 Corinthians is right there in verse 10. And he says, I want you to have unity, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So you see that there in chapter 1, verse 10. The goal is unity in the same mind and in the same judgment. But the actual situation was that this was not the case. And so the Corinthian church was not a church that was the way it should be. And they were, in fact, divided and quarreling amongst themselves. And they were, in fact, divided into various factions that were identified with different Christian leaders. And so in verse 12, we read, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or even I follow Christ. And the error that the Corinthians were making was in saying these things, that I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, was that Paul and Apollos had no quarrel. They were teaching the same gospel. Apollos, Peter, Paul, Christ were united in the same mind and in the same judgment in Jesus Christ. So what was causing the Corinthians to distort their teaching? In other words, these teachers had all come through Corinth, well, with the exception of Christ, but everyone was talking about Christ. But what was causing the Corinthians now to distort the teachers in such a way that they were then able to be divided through these very teachings that were united in the same mind and the same judgment. And what we saw in verses 18 through 25 was that there was a desire that they had for standing in the world, for prestige, much in the way that their culture divided things up. And so different people could identify with these different teachers and so kind of have some of the prestige of that teacher for themselves. Perhaps in the same way that people today can identify with different sports teams and some sports teams are better than the others. Here in Pittsburgh, we identify with the Pirates. I know everyone wants to say the Steelers. <laughs> and why? Why? I mean, just think about why that is. Because the pirates are losers. They've always lost. <laughs> They're terrible. They trade away their best players every year. But the Steelers haven't had a losing season in how long is it? Yeah, see, I mean, the Steelers would be good for a very, so everyone wants to identify with the Steelers. Same way, the Corinthians wanted to identify with someone great and have that greatness reflect upon them. But Paul gives them a reality check in verses 26 to 31. Why did Jesus Christ choose you? Why were you elected to salvation? Why were you brought in the church? Because you're the pirates. You stink. And, and, and if you are able to be lifted up 
then what does this say about the God that you serve? It is the power of God that is magnified in your weakness. But because the Corinthians had this mindset and this desire to be great and to be great themselves, but not reflect the glory of God, but rather reflect the glory of the Corinthian church and the Corinthians themselves, Paul told them at the beginning of chapter one, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is he doing there? He's saying that your faith needed to be established upon Jesus Christ. If I had come to you and had blown you away with my eloquence, the great learning that he did display to the rulers of this age, then the Corinthians would have been would have been saying like, yeah, I want to be like that. I want to be like Paul. And they would have started copying him. And he would have become the focus of their faith. And so their faith would have been founded upon this desire to be great rather than upon a man broken upon a cross, giving his life as an atonement for sin. Then Paul points out an irony in verses 6 through 13. And he says there is a wisdom. There is a grandeur and a glory that could be yours. But they can't receive it. And so there's an irony here because they were all longing for greatness. And God wants to give them greatness. But it was the very desire that they had for it that kept them from receiving it. What would unlock that? And Paul tells us at the end of chapter 2 in verses 14 to 16, the key to life, the universe, and everything is the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And what is that mind of Christ? And what you see over and over in terms of the message of the cross. What does Philippians say about this mind of Christ? He did not seize the glory that could have been his, but in humility he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so God gave him the name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth to the glory and praise of God. It's humility that unlocks the ability to actually be glorified with the very glory of God. And so now we come to chapter 3 in our passage today. And you see the way that Paul's 
argument works. First, he shows them what the problem is. And then, he shows them the reality that ought to be theirs. And now as we come to chapter 3, you see there's a progression. He's not just reiterating uh, a point about their division between following different leaders and saying, don't be divided. Because the point is not not to be divided. I could probably say that clear. It's not not. The point is not to be united. I mean, yeah, 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 that's right. The point is not to be united. But why? I mean, actually, the point is to be united, right? But there are cases in which we do need to divide. In fact, Paul's going to give them one in a few chapters. He's going to cast someone out for the destruction of their flesh. Because there are points at which there needs to be division. But now we can see why ought we not to be divided. We ought not to be divided because we're prideful people. We ought not to be divided because we are prideful people who desire goodness and greatness in the world. So Paul is unable to talk to the Corinthians as spiritual people. In other words, he is not able to talk to them as those who have the mind of Christ, to those who would discern things in the way that Jesus Christ would discern them. And so he had to approach them in weakness because they could not receive the glory that is in Christ. Metaphorically, what the Corinthians needed was spiritual Gerbers. And the question for you and I is, are you and I ready for spiritual food? What is this contrast between milk and solid food that we read about in verse 2? I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. When the Corinthians distorted the teaching of Paul, Apollos, and Christ, what they were doing is they were turning the gospel into just another way of loving this world. Do you see that? I mean, they were, they were hungering after the standing of these famous teachers. And so they were not being transformed. Sure, they had come into the church, they had, they had heard the gospel, but now they had taken that gospel which exemplifies humility and weakness. I mean, what does the cross represent? When you're crucified on the cross, are you magnifying yourself before the world? What does a man on a cross do? He dies humbly in humiliation. And yet the Corinthians had perverted that message. And they had changed this message, which at its core is a message of love and humility, and turned it into a testimony to self-seeking, grandeur, and greatness, another way of promoting themselves. And so how do we build upon the foundation that is Jesus Christ? And so that's the message that Paul wants to get to here in Corinthians 3. You see the problem. You see the problem is rooted in you. How now are we to lay or build upon the foundation that is laid? Let me give you an illustration. Have any of you wondered what they serve at McDonald's in India? 
Now, out of respect to Elder Gordon here, uh, we're going to take McDonald's now as the epitome of goodness. And so to exalt McDonald's would be a good thing, okay? <laughs> but the problem, I think most of you could see in terms of what would McDonald's serve in India is, is, you know, I mean, when you pass by McDonald's here, I don't even know what number they're on now. When I was a kid, they used to have like 63 billion hamburgers served or something like that. Uh, but hamburgers are made from, not ham, but cows, right? And cows enjoy a particular standing in India. And so what do they serve in India? Well, I looked it up. Uh, some of the offerings they have, one of them is a mekaloo tiki, which is potato and peas in a patty served with a vegetable sauce. There's chicken maharaja mac, which is a chicken patty with jalapenos and habanero sauce. Sounds pretty good. There's a McSpicy paneer, which is paneer cheese fried in a crunchy batter coating. So in doing this, are those McDonald's executives in India fulfilling their mission? Well, if they're offering these nicely fried foods in a way that will attract the Indians to spend their fast food dollars at McDonald's, I would say they've adapted well to their culture and they're fulfilling their mission because the mission of McDonald's is being promoted. But what if an executive thought a good way to attract people to come to McDonald's would be promoting healthy eating habits? And so every time you went to a McDonald's, they had a healthy cooking show being hosted. And you could have these demonstrators, kind of like at Costco, show you how you could fry or, or uh, steam vegetables in a healthy way and cook these things at home and make them from healthy ingredients and avoid eating those artery-clogging fried foods. How would McDonald's view that? Well, the rest of us might think that might be a good thing, but it would be a betrayal of the McMission, right? <laughs> because it would be kind of like the Surgeon General deciding to become a spokesman for Marble, posing with that cowboy head on, Surgeon General, the Marble Man. It would be a betrayal of the essential core of the mission that they're on. Well, what is the mission that God has given to the church? The purpose of food is that when you receive food, food gives you the nutrients that you have to grow. And so to a baby, you give milk. But it's your hope that you don't just keep feeding that baby milk forever. Those of you who had children, I mean, you start out and you give your children baby food. And I remember when we first started having children and we were looking up like, you know, how do we uh, nurse the children and help them eat and things like this. Irene and I found that there's this woman and she was still nursing her children when they were like teenagers, right? I mean, it's just kind of weird. <laughs> because your hope is that when they get the milk, they'll grow. 
And when they've grown, they can then receive solid food. They can get the substantial food and become more mature and more capable. But in still needing milk, what the Corinthians showed was that they had not grown, they had not matured. And so that's what verses 5 to 15 tell us. Because they are building in such a way, they are feeding themselves in such a way that they hadn't matured. They were still thinking in worldly terms. Paul says, I could not address you as spiritual people. Why couldn't he address them as spiritual people? Because even though they had come into the church, and presumably many of them are Christians, they didn't have the mind of Christ. They were still living in the way of the world. In fact, the whole church had come to have a culture established within it that was extremely unhealthy. The very church had a culture that promoted spiritual immaturity. So how is it that we build properly upon the foundation that is laid by Jesus Christ? The first thing that Paul says in verses 5 to 17 is that we must acknowledge the absolute sovereignty of God and trust in his design and in his goodness. Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul's servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? They were looking at how well did each of these leaders present themselves and which style they should copy because that's what their culture did. But Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. The church cannot be built on anything else than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul and Apollos are not anything but servants of God. But at the same time, God has given his servants, including you and I, the responsibility of building upon the foundation which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, let each one, in verse 10, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So this is a strange sort of building, right? Because um, most of us don't build a house and then we don't test how well the house was built by setting it on fire and seeing what's left over. But in terms of this metaphor that Paul wants us to understand, when you build upon the foundation that is Christ, this is how you test it. And there might be a reason that he chooses fire as what the test is. But we see that there is different quality to what is built. The work that you do, the work that I do, will be tested by fire. 
And the question is, what have you built upon that foundation of Jesus Christ? If it's wood or hay, burned up. And everything you've done will be lost. Gold, silver, precious stones will remain and will be established upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so a helpful diagnostic question might go along these lines. Do our ministries help us to value and treasure Christ? Or do they leave people grounded in the world? What is the effect of our ministry? And so you see what was going on with the Corinthians. What they were doing was not helping people treasure Jesus Christ and find their joy in him but rather they were still reaching after the world in the same way that the world was teaching them. What do we do? Do we have ministries that direct people? Now, you don't always accomplish it, right? Because it depends upon the person and their appetite. But if someone was to join our fellowships, if someone was to come to our church, do we point them to Jesus Christ and say, this is the living water? Or do we try to attract them with something else? Put a little teeth on it. Um, when I first came here to PCC, and we were, I was discussing with some people, how do we uh, plan for our fellowships? And uh, this was particularly the RISE fellowship they were talking about. And I was told that people come to RISE not for the Bible studies, but for the fellowship. Okay. What's the problem if people come for fellowship? Fellowship's a good thing, right? Not if the fellowship doesn't direct us to love Jesus Christ. If we strive to build our church on something other than Jesus Christ, then what people will associate Christianity with, what they'll understand our faith to be, is that it will be grounded in something other than the gospel. Sure, I come here. I can have friends. I can enjoy time. We can do activities together that we like. We can share our lives with each other. And yet, if that sharing, if that fellowship isn't rooted in who Jesus Christ is, then our joy and our delight is in something other than Christ. It's one step removed. What do we build into Christianity through our ministries? What is it that we're bringing people to love? Why do they come to the church? <laughs> Hopefully some of you will be here next week. Uh, <laughs> do we come for the worship music? We do have excellent, I'm very thankful for the worship leaders and the musicians that we have. But if the worship music is the reason that we come to the church, then the worship music will start to get distorted, right? Because the music will be the foundation of what unites us together. And so we can't have music that would stretch us and challenge us and move us in ways that we might not be comfortable. It can't be the kind of music that is focused on God because the, the new Christian coming into the church, what are they about? They're mostly, well, they're spiritual infants. They're about themselves. And so our worship music will become very basic. It'll become very childlike. It'll become very self-focused. 
I happened to do my dissertation on worship music, and I looked at the most popular worship songs that had come out, and this was 20-some years ago now. But one of the results of that analysis was worship music ceased, had ceased to be about God, but more about how much we love God and how good we are at serving Him. We know a lot of churches have built enormous ministries on very bad worship music. The object becomes satisfying our consumers rather than glorifying God. What about our fellowships? If our fellowships aren't rooted in bringing people to Christ, encountering Him, and helping them to know Him, one result would probably be our fellowships will begin to be homogenous. People who are in the same life stage, lifestyle, same interests as we are. Because we'll get along and enjoy that kind of fellowship. One of the stresses of the church has to become, has to be become, to be to become more diverse, more inclusive. And the, have you noticed the way that the church has managed to do that? Churches have become more racially diverse, more ethnically diverse, but they've kept a certain homogeneity in terms of the type of people who come, all young, upwardly mobile professionals, all people of the same socioeconomic class. Well, what does the gospel do? And so when I went to Trinity, we did actually have, I was, Irene and I were in a study that was extremely diverse, but it hadn't intended to be diverse. But simply because what we were all focused upon was growing to know Jesus Christ better, that brought together people from many different backgrounds and ethnicities. So what do our fellowships look like? How easy is it for someone who is not like us to come in? Someone whose lifestyle we would find difficult. Someone whose values might not be the same as ours. What if it's the preacher that we come to see? Then that preacher is going to, be, going to become way too concerned with how he presents himself, how things sound. He's going to be way too careful not to say things that would offend people, not challenge, and leave us comfortable, but not convicted. How then instead do we avoid the Corinthian problem and make God, Jesus Christ, the foundation of our worship? One of the greatest influences on my life has been a theologian by the name of Jonathan Edwards. I've read not all, not even close. He's written so many things, and they're constantly still being published, even though he's dead. Uh, the key to that is to write so sloppily, but to be, be such a great theologian that everyone wants to read your work but can't. <laughs> and so there's a whole set of scholars at Yale who are training themselves to read his chicken scribbles. And as they're able to do that, they're sorting through his notes. Now, he didn't have much paper, so he would write on a piece of paper, and then to save space, he would turn the paper 90 degrees and then write right on top of everything he'd already written. And so his writing is really messy, and it's written on top of itself. And so, so anyway, they're still uh, deciphering things and printing things that he wrote. 
Uh, but when Irene and I started talking, one of the things that I did was I was reading her excerpts from Edwards's writings. And he is someone who was, he's been described as a God entranced man. God filled his thoughts. And one of the ways that that's reflected is when he was young, he wrote down resolutions that he decided that he would read for the rest of his life. And anytime a new resolution occurred to him, he would add that to the list. And let me just give you a couple of the ones that he wrote concerning how God became the foundation of his life. Resolved, never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. In other words, that all the activity of his life would be focused upon the glory of God. Resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. In other words, he had resolved to spend his life in knowing God because he was convinced that his ultimate joy lay in coming to understand who God was and what God had planned for him. He said it this way, God himself, the eternal three in one, is the chief object of this science, the science of study. The next and the next Jesus Christ as God, man, and mediator, and the glorious work of redemption, the most glorious work that ever was wrought. Then the great things of the heavenly world, the glorious and eternal inheritance purchased by Christ and promised in the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit of God on the hearts of men, our duty to God, and the way in which we ourselves may become like God himself in our measure. All these are objects of this science is the ministries of this church geared toward helping you know god as deeply and well as you can because we are convinced that your greatest joy your greatest satisfaction in this life is rooted in coming to know jesus christ Chuck Colson of Prison Ministries, over 30 years ago, challenged the church in this way. The Western church, much of it drifting and culturated and infected with cheap grace, desperately needs to hear Edwards's challenge. It is my belief that the prayers and work of those who love and obey Christ in our world may yet prevail as they keep the message of such a man as Jonathan Edwards. But what has been happening these last 30 years? Uh, one of the things that some of you may be aware of is Ligonier takes a survey. And 
they just ask people within the church what they know about God, and they ask them questions about the Trinity, about salvation, and what salvation is grounded in. Every year, the results get more depressing because we are not a church, the American church, that knows God, and our ignorance increases every year. What are we going to be in this church? Are we going to be a church that knows and loves God? How do we build? What does it mean to become a fool that we might become wise? And why is it so important that we build upon Christ? One of the things that I've been challenged with through this passage, actually just going through Corinthians, is how do I find my joy and delight? Do I find it in amusements? Do I find it in diversions? Do I find it in hobbies? Or do I find it in assiduously studying God's word that I might discover things about God, what he has planned for me, the ways in which he has worked my redemption, how he is sanctifying me, and the purpose for that sanctification, and the glory that he wants to communicate to me, the goodness of my God. Do I see that in the pages of scripture? Is it infecting my life? And does my joy come as I meet God in prayer and in his word? Why is it important? Well, two reasons. How do you value your life? What kind of price would you put on your life? Would you be surprised if the government put a price on each one of your lives? Uh, they do. Uh, that's how they make a lot of policy decisions. Um, economists kind of figure out the value of the average American life. And then when they make policy decisions, like do we shut down the nation for COVID? Uh, then they'll calculate out, well, what's the expected value of the loss of life if we reopen the country, and what's the expected loss to the economy if we do close it, and then there's just a calculation that you make. Uh, they have changed this number. Um, there was a point at which I think there was a safety regulation uh, that they wanted to do in labeling like flammable liquids or something like that, and, and what they, the way they calculated out was if you take the average person and think about, well, how much value would he give throughout his life and then like if we put this label on how much will it cost to put this label and and they made the decision no we don't want to label these dangerous hazardous flammable liquids because it would cost more to do that than it would save in terms of the lives that and then people are like wait how did that work and and they decide oh we're actually valuing people's lives the wrong way i mean each, each person is only worth a few hundred thousand dollars um and probably most of you would put a greater value on your life than that uh, and so they, they actually started including some things, I think, in their formula in terms of like, you know, how much people care about living and, and things like that. Uh, and so the decision on COVID was, was, you know, a lot different. I think they valued people much higher, several million. Uh, what would you put in terms of the value of your life? Um, my father uh, back there probably puts a fairly low value on his life. I remember when I was young, uh, we were shopping for shoes. And while we were in the shoe store, this guy comes into the store, a big fella, and he grabs the store owner's purse and runs out the door with it. And my dad just goes right after him. And he tackles this guy and gets the purse and brings it back in. 
And because he saved, it was actually the wife of the store owner, because he saved her, uh, this woman's purse, they gave us 10% off our purchase of hush puppies. And so uh, I would guess, you know, in today's audit, probably those shoes would be like $20. And so my dad put the value of his life at, I guess, 10% of 20, which would be $2. <laughs> okay, but what value would you put on your life? Is your life the be-all, end-all? Because what Paul is getting at here is there is something that is worth it, right? Worth the sacrifice of your life. If your joy, your life is rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, and Paul's life is being poured out like a drink offering for the sacrifice and service that comes from his life, there's something that's worth it, right? And so why is it so important? And, and, and here's the reason. You're all going to devote your life to something. And we need to show each other and display within our own lives how we value Jesus Christ. And I think we got, as a church, an enormous gift last week when Matt Fan came up here and he gave his testimony. I mean, for those of you who don't know him as well, young man who gave his testimony last week, uh, and so he went in for brain surgery this week. And uh, it was the reoccurrence of a tumor that he had already had removed. And I don't know if you heard some of the things he shared. Uh, as a result of some of the medications and the condition that he has, his body was so itchy, he said it was driving him mad and he wanted to die. And then this last week, he goes in for a brain surgery. And yet, because this tumor has reoccurred, there's a very good chance that it could keep coming back. And so he's faced at a very young age with the reality that this life might not be what most of us hope it would be. So Irene and I went to see him uh, when he came out of the surgery last, last Wednesday. First words out of his mouth. Tell Howard, good luck with the Bible study. <laughs> Can we have that kind of rootedness, that kind of value, that kind of love for our Savior so that when the trial comes, it's not the end of the world because we know that God has promised us something far greater in Christ Jesus. I don't think Matt can go into that surgery with that kind of attitude unless he has that clear vision of the glory of Jesus Christ that preserves you when you face the loss of this worldly hope. And the question for each one of you this morning is, do you have that hope? What happens to you when the cancer diagnosis comes? Another reason why it is so important for us to build the foundation of our ministry upon Jesus Christ uh, many of us have been studying uh, or listening to the Ask Pastor John series in our fellowships and our Bible studies. And uh, Piper's got a pretty large church, uh, but there's larger churches out there. Uh, I've been to Piper's church. I've been to other bigger churches in Texas. Uh, we, 
went, my family went to one church in Texas, and I remember when, they, when we went to the service that Sunday, uh, they were announcing to us about how they were building this gym and this health center. And, you know, I don't want to judge. Maybe there's a health center ministry that they're getting involved in. Uh, but really, I, I don't know any effect to the broader evangelical community that this enormous church has had. But this, when Piper started there, actually he brought the, the membership of that church down by half when he first went. Uh, but this church of 200 people, started at 200 people in Minneapolis, what kind of effect has it had as they focused upon the sovereignty and the glory of God? What kind of effect do we want our church to have? <laughs> Piper says this in terms of, um, he was, this was a challenge given to pastors, but I would say not only the pastors, but all of you who would serve in the church. And he's talking about this focus upon God. If the single-minded occupation with these things is left to a few academic theologians in the colleges and seminaries, while pastors all become technicians and managers and organizers, there may be superficial success for a while as Americans get excited about one program or the other, but in the long run, the gains will prove shallow and weak, especially in the day of trial. Who are we going to be? What do we want to accomplish? Do we want to build the church in numbers? Or is our goal the glory of God, faithfulness to his mission, and treasuring him in our lives? The gospel has to transform our church and our fellowships. <laughs> Two weeks ago when we started this, uh, we were looking at what does it mean to be the perfect Christian church, perfect Christian church, PCC. Uh, that was the, that was the, in the, I don't know if you saw it, that was the outline, uh, the perfect Christian church, PCC. Uh, but the out, in terms of looking at what was going on here, what would keep us from being that, uh, we saw perverse contentions and combativeness in the um, uh, Corinthian church. You might see some of that in our church. And then we got reasons, the particulars of the church of conflict, which perhaps we can see some of those reasons here. But then the solution to that, as Paul said, was preach Christ crucified. Well, as we see that, let me give you one more acronym for PCC. Can we be a church of principle? Can we have conviction? And then can we have commitment to those principles and conviction? Can we be that kind of PCC? Principles, conviction, and commitment. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your patience with the church, and we take great comfort and joy in knowing that what this church will become is grounded in your plan, your sovereign direction, and the work of Jesus Christ. And so even where we are weak, you are strong. But I pray, Lord, that we would be conscientiously weak, that we might become strong, that the strength of this church would not be in what we can do, the numbers that we can get, but in our joy, in our delight in Jesus Christ, and in our commitment to him. 
There's no question that as a church, the Western church, it is drifting. What is its anchor? It doesn't seem to have found one. Lord, we pray that our church would be anchored upon Jesus Christ, his work, and that we would live taking our joy and delight in his glory. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Um, we've been really blessed as we hear how one another, uh, how God has been working in the lives of this congregation. Uh, Jeff, hey, we're privileged to hear from Jeff this morning as he wants to share with us how God has been working in his life. Hi, I'm Jeffrey, and this is my testimony of how I came to know and believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. There have been several examples of rough times in which I could lead me to trust in Jesus. When looking back at these events, I realized how God used these to shape my life through, though I will focus on the aspect of divorce. So I grew up in a Christian family. My family moved from Kuching, Malaysia to Dallas, Texas, the year before I was born, then moved to Pittsburgh where I was born. My younger brother was born three years later. Overall, there were five siblings. There were marriage problems between my parents. They were divorced, leaving my mom to take care of you know, five children. My older siblings helped me with taking care of me and my younger brother. It was definitely a tumultuous time. Um, before my parents split, my mom was a stay-at-home mother. Um, her education level is high school level, so her job opportunities were limited. Okay. The divorce affected the relationship between my siblings and um, and our dad. My oldest son was during that time like ready teenagers, so they decided not to visit my dad. But my, my my younger brother and I visit our dad like once a week after church on Sundays. Though some of the time was fun like, spending time with our dad, but there are sometimes they're like not so much. So there was tension between my mom, our, our mom and our dad. So did, like my dad would have like bad temper at times. And it was mostly toward my mom. But um, whenever he expresses it, it was like directed toward, you know, me and my younger brother. Yeah, I felt like like whenever he like had temper, it was mostly I mostly had the blunt of it when that happened. Um, I guess like during that time, he, he thought it was not fair. Like he had to pay child support only to see his kids like once a week due to a mistake he made, and ended the marriage. So my younger brother and I would continue to see our dad once a week until each of us went for college. So it became rare that at, when I was an adult, it became rare to, for me to see my dad. I, I, like, it was not definitely not like a healthy thing because like my relationship with my dad was kind of like non-existent at that point. I was kind of like. I had the thought of frustration, like how can my dad leave his family? Like, and it was like, you know, five at that time, early in my life. Mm. 
let's fast forward to like this year. So, so it took me years until early this year that it seemed like God planned to correct my, the relationship that me and my siblings have for, with our dad. So like this past like 4th of July, I got a text from my uncle that my dad was in the hospital for what might be like a stroke. So like, yeah, for quite some time, I had little contact with my dad. So like, I had like no little knowledge of what was going on with this life. It would be, it was like, it would be awkward. It was awkward whenever people asked about, you know, like my dad. So that's just due to like my lack of um, seeing him during that time. So like, um. So I arranged um, to visit my dad in the hospital with um, my sister's family because I didn't want to go alone. Yeah, it was like the first time I had seen him in a long time. And, and a few days later, maybe it's over a week later, like I, along with my uncle, I helped like get my dad discharged from the hospital. So I guess after he was discharging, went home. I just like thought he would just heal and and not really. It, it, my life would just go back to normal, just like not see him. And then my uncle like called me to like he knows I had not been visiting my dad like after you know his discharge. So like so like, pretty much like made arrangements with my uncle to go see my dad like pretty much on a weekly basis since then. So I guess I would like to prayers for my dad's continual healing as well as there being some semblance of a relationship. So I believe that though particularly difficult situations that God molded me in my faith is like suffering that refines you. A Bible verse that continue that comes to mind is Isaiah forty eight ten. Behold, I have defined you, but not as silver, rather I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Thank you for listening to my ramble and my TED talk. That's all. I don't know about you guys. I was surprised to find out that Jeffrey was not a member uh, just this, this year, a few months ago. <laughs> uh, but I think Part of the reason for that surprise is those of you who know him know that Jeff is a man with just an incredible heart to serve. He serves generously with his time, with his money, in so many ways. And so, uh, you know, what we were saying earlier, my background, I grew up in a loving Christian home. My father and mother love each other. Uh, Jeff, as you just heard, had a very difficult upbringing. But can we find the same joy in Christ? And can Christ unite Jeff and I together one body. I'm very thankful for this brother. Let's pray together for him. Father, we thank you for the